This is Luke 2, 1 through 14. Now in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census be taken of all the inhabited earth. This was the first census taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone was on his way to register for the census, each to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee from the city of Nazareth to Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was the house and family of David, in order to register along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was with child. While they were there, the days were completed for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. In the same region, there were shepherds staying out in the fields and keeping watch over the flock by night. And an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terribly frightened. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. For today in the city of David there, was been, there has been born for you a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father, as we hear your word now, may our hearts hear the message of the angels to fear not, behold, good tidings of great joy is being pronounced to us. This one who has come is our peace. May we find our peace in him this morning as we hear and our hearts respond to your word. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Today, we have lit the Advent candle of peace. And for many of us, it feels like an act of defiance. Defiance against the general mood of our world and our times. Defiance against today's headline news or whatever's trending online. I'm pretty sure that peace is not a trending topic on Twitter right now. Talk of war takes up most of the text online and consumes most of the oxygen in the newsroom in our day. In two months' time, we'll mark the second anniversary of Putin's invasion of Ukraine and of war in Europe. The Ukrainians are slowly taking back land, but they're paying a high price for every inch of their country they reclaim. In this war, thousands are dying every month on both sides, both soldiers and civilians. And now winter is coming and peace feels very far away. Then, just two months ago, Hamas launched a surprise attack against Israel, killing many people in their homes, taking hundreds of hostages. In response, Israel declared war, started bombing the Gaza Strip. To this day, many Israeli civilians are still being held And many Palestinians have been killed or forced to flee their homes. How will it end? 
No one really knows. But peace again feels very far away. Alongside the wars in Europe and the Middle East, other parts of the world also feel on the brink. Some in Asia are watching what is happening in Europe to see if Russia's ambitions succeed, to see if the West resolve will fail before launching their own bids for more territory and more influence. Even in South America last week, the peace between two neighboring nations began to feel very frail when Venezuela claimed two-thirds of their neighbor's land as their own and militaries start to mobilize. Peace can feel like a very feeble thing in our modern world. But peace can also feel like a non-existent thing in our online world. Not only are we battered online by every tragedy and war in the world, but social media has also ensured that we almost never get away from it. We almost never get away from conflict. There was a time once, a time some may call the good old days, when if you had a conflict with someone, the only place to have that conflict was face to face. The only people you could be in conflict with were the actual people you were, that were in your life. You had physical contact with. There was no opportunity to have conflict with someone on the other side of the country because you never saw them or knew anything about them and had no opportunity for any kind of back and forth with them. Unless, of course, you wanted to write a pamphlet attacking the ideas of someone you've never met. But then you had to spend money and get it published and get people to read it, so it was all just a lot of bother, wasn't it? One of the problems with the advent of the internet is that it gives everyone the ability to be a pamphleteer. A pamphleteer with a worldwide reach and at no personal expense to themselves. Be honest, how many of us can relate to having our peace momentarily stolen because of some online friend's social media post? A post which was essentially a pamphlet for some extreme viewpoint or political cause or conspiracy theory. I know I've, I've had my piece stolen <laughs> in that way. I, I've had my piece stolen by online pamphleteers, and I bet you have too. On the one hand, this is nothing new. People have been writing pamphlets with controversial views for a long, long time. Just ask Alexander Hamilton, ask any of the founding fathers. They know <laughs> this happens. On the one hand, nothing is new. But on the other hand, what is new is how much and how often we encounter the controversial. Before the digital age, people's opinions tended to get moderated and balanced by their community, by the people directly around them, because that's all the contact they ever had with others was the people directly around them. But the online world now puts you in contact with everyone. You don't have to be moderated and balanced by your real-life community because you can build your own virtual community. Anyone can. If you have an extreme view, you can find a whole community of others who share that view with you and who reinforce it with their likes and comments. So that now, largely because of the internet, we're regularly encountering people who believe extreme things or spread fake news or advocate strange conspiracies 
And instead of being reasoned with in real life, they're being affirmed by a digital community in comments with people applauding them and egging them on. Our online age enables extreme views to grow and reinforce themselves in others while also exposing the rest of us increasingly to those views. And the resulting feeling is one of social dissidence. Have you felt it? We feel an increasing lack of harmony. We feel the absence of peace. And over society as a whole, there is a corresponding rise in anxiety, levels of anxiety, feelings of fear and despair, a rise in all that is opposed to our peace. Folks, we're coming up on an election year, if you didn't know it. I've lived out of the country for the past two presidential elections, so I'm not really sure what it feels like anymore. Maybe I'm wrong, but I imagine a word like contentious will probably describe this coming year better than a word like harmonious would. I imagine strife will feel closer to the mark than peace. I imagine many of you are already have a feeling of dread at the next election cycle. So, what are we to do? Light the candle of peace and pretend everything is fine? No. We're not to pretend that things are fine. Instead, we are to picture things in the state we find them in Luke chapter 2. We are to picture things as we find them in the nativity. Because the nativity is a picture of our peace. Let's remind ourselves again of what's going on. Pick up in verse 4 of chapter 2 of Luke. Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the family, uh, house and family of David, in order to register along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was with child. While they were there, the days were completed for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him in cloth and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. In the same region, there were some shepherds saying, staying out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord stood before them suddenly, and the glory of the Lord shone about them, and they were terribly frightened. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. For behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. For today, in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find the baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. This is Luke's painting of the nativity scene. Matthew adds some to it, but this is Luke's description here. It's a scene that we often recreate at Christmas time. Either we recreate it with ornaments that we put upon the mantle arranged there, or yard decorations we put on the front lawn, or with children. We dress up on stage to play parts, to play parts like Mary and Joseph traveling to Bethlehem, an innkeeper declaring there's no room for them in the end. Other kids get 
get parts like animals, uh, like donkeys, sheep, cattle, sharing the stable with Mary and Joseph. Those are usually the less good actors in the group, but they can act however they want if they're animals on stage. Then we bring in more kids dressed up as shepherds who are watching over their flocks. And then there come the angels, those kids who get to dress up in white and get to say, hark. Usually those are the most well-behaved kids. (laughs) Get to be the angels. Say, hark, proclaiming shepherds, proclaiming to the shepherds the Savior's birth. Then last but not least, Into our nativity play comes the wise men. Wise men, the magi, who are directed by a star in the sky and by Old Testament prophecy to Bethlehem. These come bearing royal gifts for the king who is born in a stable. I asked in staff meeting this week if we could recreate that scene with our kids at this point during the sermon. Maybe next time was the answer. I got. It, it takes some work to get all those costumes and props together, but maybe next time. But I hope and trust you can picture that scene without our kids' help this morning. Even if you're new to the States, even if you're new to Christianity and have never seen a nativity play pageant before with kids all dressed up as angels, animals, shepherds, with Mary and Joseph, baby Jesus there, You've probably, I hope, you've probably got a picture in mind already of what that nativity scene looks like. If you're still struggling, I think uh, Macaulay Culkin hides in a nativity scene in Home Alone. Maybe you've got that image in your mind. If you're struggling still for a visual reference, just look up at what we got here above us, above the baptistry. Look at that and imagine verse 7. Imagine the baby Jesus wrapped in cloth laid in that manger. Imagine the animals all around. Imagine the shepherds in verse 8 and the angels proclaiming to them good news of great joy, proclaiming peace on earth, goodwill toward men. Imagine the magi joining that scene with their gifts. I want you to imagine it because this scene, better than any other you can imagine, pictures our peace. It pictures our peace in at least three ways. These three ways, if you're taking notes, are our three points I'm going to give you this morning. And the first one I want you to see is this. The nativity pictures peace with others. The nativity pictures peace with others. Ironically, there are people who don't like the nativity scene. They're opposed to it being displayed at Christmas because they think it divides people. It isn't inclusive enough. But I want to say to them, I want to respond, what scene could be more inclusive than this? Here you have it all. You have angels and animals. Here you have God and man come together. Here you have mother and child and family at the center. Here you have shepherds from the fields. You have kings from the east. Here you have working class and ruling class. You have the uneducated alongside the most educated. You have the abject poverty of a stable alongside gifts fit for a king. The nativity scene is as multi-ethnic, multi-racial, multi-class, multicultural as you can imagine. 
None are too poor or too mean, too rich or too wise to come and join in this scene of joyful worship. What more could you want? What greater scene of unity and peace could there be? Could you possibly imagine and put in the place of the scene God himself orchestrates for us? This scene pictures our peace with others, all kinds of others. It's not insignificant that the animals are there, that the birth of Emmanuel comes in front of them. We know from Genesis that our relationship with the animal kingdom isn't what it's supposed to be. It isn't what it originally was in Eden. As sin enters into the world and mankind falls, there is loss, a loss and breaking of fellowship with all other beings, including the animals. Mankind's fall broke the world as it was, and that fall fell hard on the animals, whose history is now read in tooth and claw because of us. But it was not always so, nor will it always be so. All creation groans, Paul says, including the animals, for the day of redemption, a day when the lion will lay down with the lamb and eat grass like the ox, a day when the world will be so completely changed and reshaped by the presence of God that all the old systems, all the old food chains, all the old predator-prey relationships, all the old will pass away. Behold, all things will be made new. And God will remake this world to be a place where good things can run wild. Isaiah tells us this will happen, and he tells us why this will happen. He says of the animals that they will not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That transformation will come when the Lord's presence, the knowledge of him, comes and dwells with us at Christ's second coming, at his second advent. But it was fitting that the animals were there at his first. The infant born among all those animals and laid in one of their feeding troughs is a foretaste of a promise of peace and of a restoration that is yet to come. The nativity pictures our peace with others, the others of the animal kingdom and the others of opposing human kingdoms. Remember how we began this morning by talking about the world and how it fragments us into groups, making us us versus the others. The nativity scene does the very opposite. It's about all groups of people coming together, coming together around a king, who both animals and angels adore, in whom the simple and the wise can put their hope and find their joy. Every barrier that people build between us and others, between us and those people, this scene tears down. Whether it's the barrier of race or class or education level or economic standing, Bethlehem's nativity levels the ground and invites us all to come and bow the knee in joyful worship to this king. Rich, poor, upper class, working class, black, white, brown, 
all are invited to say together, O come, let us adore him. This is a piece pictured at the nativity, but it's also a piece purchased at the cross. Paul says in Ephesians 2, but now in Christ Jesus, you Gentiles who were formerly far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ for he himself is our peace. He's made peace between us. This baby in a manger was born to die for us and for our peace. He was born so that people from every tribe and tongue and nation might be brought together by his blood and through his sacrifice because his blood washes us clean of our sin and his sacrifice makes us one family, adopts us into one family together. But what was purchased at the cross was first pictured in the nativity. This scene pictures our peace with others, but that's not all. The nativity pictures peace with others, but also the nativity pictures peace with circumstances. The nativity pictures peace with circumstances. It pictures our peace in the midst of bad circumstances. Just look at the circumstances going on in this story. The equivalent of the Roman IRS says, you got to go back to your hometown for boring, bureaucratic tax reasons. And if that wasn't bad enough, you have to travel over open country with your wife who is great with child. If that wasn't bad enough, it's not your child (laughs) she's carrying and people are beginning to talk. If that wasn't bad enough, there's no room in the end when you finally arrive at your destination. And if that wasn't bad enough, you've got to bunk your very pregnant wife with very smelly animals. That's not good. If that wasn't bad enough, whatever your birth plan was, it's been thrown out the stable window along with the manure because this baby is coming now and there is no one to help. And if that wasn't bad enough, there's no pack and play. There's no crib. Once this baby arrives, you're a carpenter by trade, but you've got nothing better than an animal's feeding trough in which to lay your newborn son. It feels a shame. It feels bad. And if that wasn't bad enough, here come a lot of dirty shepherds, <laughs> fresh in from sleeping rough in the field, invading your privacy. The nativity scene is a mess. It's a series of unfortunate events, unfortunate circumstances. But it's meant to teach us something. The messy circumstances are God's design as well. The messy circumstances in life are God's design as well. And peace will come when we realize that. Peace can only be found in the world's mess when we recognize who it is guiding that mess to a good end. Peace can be had when we realize that God is working all things, including the bad, including the frustrating things, for our good and for his glory. Peace can be had when we come to trust the author of the story. When we 
trust that he will work it all out for good before the, the final act, before the final curtain closes. He's got it. We may not see it in the moment, but these slight momentary afflictions and misfortunes are building up something eternally good and glorious for us. And when we see that, when we trust God like that, peace will come, whatever our circumstances. You can see it in the nativity, can't you? You can see that. All these bad and frustrating events were building up to this glorious scene that God wanted to show the world. The scene of his son born in a stable. This scene pictures peace in the midst of less than ideal circumstances. Actually, I think we can all see that this scene is more beautiful and glorious because of the less than ideal circumstances. Peace comes when you see that and begin to say, huh, maybe that's what God is doing in my life too. Maybe that's what God is doing in the life of our church during these financially tight times. Maybe that's what God is doing in our country and in our world. He is doing good and bringing himself glory through less than ideal circumstances. He's working in and through the mess. If you can see that, and trust that's what God is doing, then you will have peace this Christmas. You'll have peace whatever the pressures, at home, at work, at church, and in the world at large. You can have peace. God can bring glory to himself through the most unfortunate of circumstances. That's what's pictured at the nativity. And it will bring us peace if we can see it this morning. That's the second truth. But there's a final thing I want you to see, a third and final point. The nativity pictures peace with others. The nativity pictures peace with circumstances. And ultimately, the nativity pictures peace with God. Peace with God. This is the most important point because this is the most important kind of peace there is. There is the kind, this is the kind of peace that we all need most, even if we don't realize it. More than feeling a subjective peace in myself, I need an objective peace with God outside myself. The greatest threat to me as a person, the greatest threat to us as a nation, isn't the threat of war with a nation who has atom-splitting nuclear weapons. The greatest threat is my war, your war, with the one who holds all things together, every atom together. My personal war with the one who created me and who made everything out of nothing. The reality is that we, along with the rest of humanity, whether we realize it or not, are at war with our maker. We've all committed acts of cosmic treason and joined the rebellion against our creator. We've disowned creation's king. We've disregarded his commands. We've transgressed his law. Most of all of us, every day, 
and every moment of the day live in full and open rebellion of just the first and greatest of his commands, to love. (laughs) To love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. And the second command, to love your neighbor as yourself. We said no to that obligation in a thousand ways. We put our fists in his face and said no. And therefore, we are transgressors. We are sinners. We are, in the Bible's words, God's enemies. But, the good news of Christmas, but the Bible also says, while we were his enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. While we were God's enemies, he sent his son on a rescue mission, on a mission of love and reconciliation. The, this mission to end the war, to bring peace between God and man, God and man reconciled, this mission began here at Christ's nativity. Here we have a picture of what great links God was willing to go in order to transform his enemies into his friends and his friends into his family. The great humiliation of God taking on flesh, of deity clothing himself with humanity, of the king of kings being born in a stable and laid in a manger, all this God did to demonstrate his love, to make peace with his enemies. Jesus' cross purchased this peace, but Jesus' nativity pictured this peace beforehand. And by faith in both, faith in Christ's incarnation and substitutionary death, we can find peace today. Peace with others, peace with our circumstances, and ultimately, peace with God, the peace that matters most. Some people don't like this picture, the nativity scene of angels and animals, of rich and poor, wise and simple, all gathered in a stable, around a family, around a child who is heaven's king, who is God incarnate. Some people don't like it, but in a world filled with people intent on strife, this is the exact picture of peace we all need. Lighting the Advent candle of peace today is an act of defiance. Defiance against a world at war. Defiance against those intent on strife. But this defiance of ours is also an act of allegiance. We are declaring our supreme allegiance to the Prince of peace in the midst of a messy world. Let's show the world we mean business by letting the peace of Christ rule in our hearts this Christmas. Father, as we come to you, we lay down and surrender. We lay down our burdens, we lay down our strife, we lay down our anger, we lay down our war to take up something much, much better, a peace purchased by the Son of God, a peace that was pictured in this scene at his birth. Lord, 
may you grant the most anxious heart among us to find peace in Christ this Christmas. May you grant the most troubled among us to find safety, to find freedom, to find joy in Christ. May you grant them the one among us most, most inclined to bring strife to be a peacemaker because Christ is a peacemaker and says, blessed are the ones who follow him in making peace. Lord, may your peace reign in us today and every day. We ask this in Jesus' name for his glory. Amen.